Okay, so hello and welcome to episode five of the um, A to Z of Archaeology podcast. This is E for Experimental Archaeology and I'm Alice. And I'm Jenny. And today we're joined with John Piperani, who's here to talk about experimental archaeology for us. Hello. 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 Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you personally do with experimental archaeology? Yeah, so experimental archaeology is quite a broad, it's a, it's a label that covers a lot of things. Um, but my main area of knowledge and experience is in stone tools. So my, generally in this discussion, I'll be talking about my experience of working, learning how to make stone tools. So using experimental archaeology to um, understand my academic knowledge in a different way. Could you talk a little bit about the experimental archaeology that you do at Manchester? So they're the sessions you run during uh, dinner times? Yeah, so at Manchester we have, um, we do experimental archaeology sessions. We have some experimental archaeology components within um, the modules, but we also run a sort of drop-in um, session. And I think the idea is that we've got lab space. Uh, we've got two people at Manchester who are both lithic enthusiasts. Um, the experimental sessions were started by a colleague, Nick Overton. Um, and he, he was more interested in bone um, and antler working. But when I started, we started doing um, flint napping or glass napping, first of all. Mm -hmm then flint napping and it's toilet napping. <laughs> toilet napping yeah so it's sort of morphed it's changed over time and it's become very um lithics focused of of late mm. um but um the reason that we use materials like glass um and like toilet material is not for the novelty value so much as the fact that it's freely available and learning how to do something is a practice so you know as it suggests you have to do it again and again and again and so having material that's freely available is a real bonus for a small department like us who and we're doing it uh, once a week we don't have any budget for it so it solves the materials problem but um another aspect of it that's quite valuable is that the if we talk about glass bottles, they come in the, sh the same shape every time. Um, whereas a flint nodule comes in a different shape every time. So to work with flint, you do need to already have a degree of skill to get um, to a stage where you can start to make an artifact. Whereas because we're using glass and because we're doing it every week, a we've, we've developed a sort of routine that means that people can pick up the basics very quickly and they can also produce something at the end of it, which I think is an enormously satisfying experience. So there's a sort of, um, it's, it's sort of evolved, but there's a logic behind doing it in the way we do. Flint costs us money, we have to buy it in. And um, yeah, if, you, if, you try, if you're trying to learn on Flint, it's correspondingly more difficult. So, 
that's a summary of the <laughs> experimental sessions. I could ask you, having because you are one of the people who've taken part in them, haven't you? Yeah. No, I like them. I think they're they're good fun. I think they're really good to to understand the way that that you know Flint is napped because I think it's quite difficult. I found this especially um, at Dawson last summer where it was like trying to work out whether something has been napped or whether it's just a piece of rock and having done that yourself and done the napping it definitely helps you notice which ones have been worked and which haven't and it's just it's a nice way to meet people from the department as well yeah i've i've worked you know when i was learning how to flint nap i've worked with professional flint nappers in other words people who do this for a living mm. and um one person, John Lord, I was having a conversation with him. And it was really interesting because, you know, as an academic, one of the things you look at is the ripples of percussion, the direction that uh, removals are taken from. So when you pick up a piece, you have a look and you try and see which direction it's been napped. Because those kind of patterns can tell you a lot about the, the kind of period that it was produced in, the type of... Um, culture that it belongs to and when I was talking to John Lord who's a really fantastic experienced flint napper he never looks at that he, he's very much focused on the end product what it looks like and he re reproduces that so it's quite it's quite interesting that what what you're describing about we're looking for certain things as academics mm -hmm. um, experimental flint nappers and not necessarily thinking about the same things. Um, I know you mentioned the difference between experimental archaeology for research and engagements. Could you tell us a little bit more about um, what the difference is? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you about when I did my PhD because it's sort of experience. Um, I was really interested in experimental archaeology and what part of what was part of my PhD involved five days experimental production um, and so in my mind when I started my PhD I was looking at um, material in museums that didn't really have much context so I thought why don't I get an experimental flint napper to look at the museum examples the finished product and reproduce them and then I'll have a full collection of debris or debitage. So that was my approach. So I was aiming to use experimental archaeology um, as a research tool. Mm. And um, when, I, when I worked with the experimental archaeologist Carl Lee, who was really good and really engaged with the project, he produced for me a, a complete sequence. When I, when I looked at them in our lab, so I spread them all out and I compared them to the ones I'd seen in the museum. I realized that, you know, that scar pattern I was talking about. The scar pattern on Carl's was different to the ones in the museum. And um, he'd explained really clearly to me at each stage what he was doing and also why he was doing it. So the logic behind what he was doing. So I had a really good understanding of what Carl was doing. But I also had an understanding that actually these are different to the archaeological examples so he didn't it, what it awoke it awakened in me an understanding that i thought because carl's an expert 
and a very skilled practitioner, he would automatically reproduce the process that was going on in the past. But what I realized was, well, actually, it, it appears as though, the, as though these particular type fossils can be made in a number of different ways. Mm. And you still end up with a, a similar end product. So it sort of made me realize that um, to use experimental archaeology as a research tool, it can be quite tricky. You know, it can be really valuable, but it can also be quite tricky. Um, somebody else at Manchester called Alice Laporta, she's doing a research project in paleoanthropology. And um, she looked at uh, something called Lavalois points. Yeah. And she was interested in whether or not Neanderthals who made Lavalois points could, were throwing the spears or whether they were thrusting them. So it was a sort of, it's a key argument around Neanderthals because somebody analysed their shoulders and thought the shoulders don't look like they've got this rotation that Homo sapien shoulders have. Mm. So perhaps because they're well built, perhaps all they can do is thrust, thrust their spears. So she looked at the um, polish on um, these Lavalois points and she got an experimental archaeologist to... Um, thrust them and then did another set where she was throwing them to see if the use wear and the polish was different because when you throw something it's going in at a faster speed than if you mm. thrust it so the effect on the tool will be different and she she was quite successful i wouldn't say i was unsuccessful because my process highlighted for me where it wasn't helping so in that respect, it was really useful and it educated me. But hers was more traditionally useful in that she found two different signatures from thrusting and throwing. So she was able to discern that actually these archaeological examples were thrown. So she could then answer a bigger question. But surely the Neanderthals have a different like body shape from the humans that are throwing them like in the modern day now. Yeah. And um, yeah. Good point. And um, that was sort of one of the reasons why they thought about the thrusting, because shoulders were a different shape and they were more heavily built. So this idea had developed that actually the way Neanderthals hunt is they just get stuck in with these really big animals. That's why they've got so many broken bones and so many and such big bodies. But what she was looking at was the speed at which the projectile entered the target and the speed would, would could either be by thrusting or throwing and there was sort of parameters for each so she was sort of taking attention away from the neanderthal body and our expectations of it and more onto the actual artifacts and the scientific evidence that she could draw from the artifacts does that make sense yeah it's a really nice way of using experimental archaeology to um, answer a question. Yeah, so that's sort of more the the research side of it. Yeah, so um, I'd say Alice's is a good example of using experimental archaeology in a research context. Yeah, um, do you have you personally got any experience of any um, public engagement experimental archaeology? Yeah, so a lot of um, 
a lot of the experience I've got is through that public engagement aspect. I, I, the way I approach archaeology is because I was a mature student and for a long time was interested in archaeology and had lots of things I wanted to find out. Well, it's, it's quite a big step for people to take a degree, mm. you know. Um, so really, I, I've run some workshops. That, the type of workshops I would like to go to if I wasn't in the situation mm. I'm in. And through my teaching experience, one of the things that not, not just I, but the department I was in realised is that it's quite hard for people to get their head around um, the different periods of prehistory because it's quite complicated. And if, you, if you're dealing with it every day, you, you get your head around it and then you don't even think about it. Yeah. But for somebody who's interested but hasn't got that same experience. So because I'd taken part in a number of experimental archaeology projects and because I enjoy it and I think it's a good way for people to learn, I, did, um, I sort of organised a set of workshops. So working with other practitioners so not necessarily archaeologists but so a potter uh, a fabric artist so i did paleolithic venus figurine mm. so that people could make a figurine have a think about um what it might mean so i'd give them some kind of context but it's a really nice way to spend three or four hours getting to understand what the paleolithic's about and it's quite a nice social thing to do as well because yeah. you're you you you're with a group of people you don't really know but by the end of four hours doing mm. something it's a really easy way to connect with people mm. and then we have a little discussion at the end about people's experience of it so paleolithic venus figurine um mesolithic engraved shale pendant from star car neolithic it was a neolithic pot and a bronze age arrowhead so the idea is that instead of having to read a book and memorize all these dates and terms you can associate an experience with the period and then you've got a, a good grasp of the four main prehistoric periods yeah and, and that's been that's been pretty but the key thing is it's structured it's structured so people can come to one and they'll still get a good experience or they can come to all four and they'll get an understanding of the whole process hmm. so that's a, that's like a public engagement activity, but it's also structured in a way that they come away with some useful academic understanding. Yeah. Um, can public engagement and experimental archaeology with the public ever answer research questions? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the, the nearest answer I can give you, <laughs> based on um, my, my experience to date, is a project that Nick did, Nick Overton did, with... Mm students who made a um, pendant so a star car type pendant and then they wore it so they um, looked at the use wear before after uh -huh. they made it then they wore it for I think a month and they monitored it monitored it um, over that month to see what kind of use wear occurred by wearing it next to your body and then they could analyze it after the four weeks and then then they could decide but again that's a really good way of getting used to the process of understanding use wear and the regular sort of assessment of change so i don't know if they had any groundbreaking 
outcome from that. But as um, it, it was a real experiment because I don't think anybody had done that before. Mm. So nobody thought about pendants. Is it jewellery? Would there be any use where from wearing it? Um, so it's quite innovative in that respect. And it was a real experiment. So yeah, no, that sounds really cool. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. It was really good. And um, one of the people who took part in it um, is working commercially now. And I was speaking to her like this on Zoom, and she had it on. And this is like yeah. years. <laughs> Are there any particularly like groundbreaking archaeological discoveries that have been found out through experimental archaeology? That's it. That's a good question. I'm thinking about lithics. Um, one of them. I mean, this isn't this isn't a direct answer to your question, but it's related to your question. Mm -hmm. um, making Lavalois points. So through the experimental process of making Lavalois points, and I can't make them; they're quite complex to make. That was one of the, um, once people started making them, realised, oh, actually, these are quite difficult. Um, they started to think about the process and the number of sequence of processes and how far ahead you have to think in order to, to produce the end product. And that was used as a way of thinking about Neanderthal cognition and shift, shifting, if you like, the idea away from them being sort of brutal and fairly simplistic yeah. to how, how much forethought they must have had in order to conceive of and then produce something. And in order to do that, obviously we, an, an experimental archaeologist, had to make them first in order to work out what the process was, then try and use it as a model to understand the cognition process and the different stages of it. So it's a, a sort of indirect answer to your question. Mm. What I'd like to talk about yeah. um, is, and, and this is something that I think is really interesting, in that Paleolithic archaeology is usually quite um, functionalist because we're not left with loads of material. And so it tends to be, yeah, it tends to be quite functionalist. But I think that when you're making something, what I've realized is that you're using a lot more of your senses and your experience to produce something than just thinking about it or just making it. And I think that's an area that is really interesting to explore. It's something I'm exploring a lot, how we learn through our senses. And I, the, one of the reasons I think it's useful is because people in the past would have been much more attuned to what was going on when they were making something well they wouldn't have necessarily well they wouldn't have been thinking about it in the same ways that we do mm. but, um so one of the examples is sound that you can start to hear when you hit something correctly and you can quite often flint nappers um when they're using flint they'll hold it up and they'll bang it with a stone and if it gives a clear sound you know it's not got any fractures or inclusions and if it's um, got a dull sound, you know it's probably cracked and it's not going to make a useful tool. So there's a whole realm of the senses. How to hit something is really interesting because um, Alice talked about it with her research. The, the degree of impact and kinetic energy is a formula. It's a physics formula to do with the size of the stone you're using and the speed that you hit it with. 
So you could use a small stone and hit something very fast and get a similar result to using a big stone and hitting it slowly. But your body has to work all that out. And that's it in a way what skill is, that your body gets used to picking up this stone and automatically deciding how hard to hit something to get the effect that you want. And I think that's really interesting. You know, so on the outside, what you're doing is you're learning how to make a stone tool or nap flint. But actually what's happening is your body's working out a lot of things and they're not, they're not conceptual. Mm. That makes sense. They're not intellectual things. They are, your body's doing it. And then we're almost catching up, working out what our bodies learn how to do. So I think there's lots of mileage in that, um, especially from a teaching and learning perspective, because we're obviously not Paleolithic people. Learning how to make a hand axe doesn't give us a particularly useful view of the Paleolithic. But what it does do is give us a particularly useful view of how we're using our senses to understand the process. And that I think that has got a stronger link with what people in the past were doing than how we think about it or just being able to produce something. I yeah. suppose as well, it probably um, lets you see the more social aspect of that because I'm, I'm assuming that you can see different stages of technique in the archaeological record. Like you can see a hand axe that's been made by someone with no skill versus one that's maybe been made with quite a lot of skill. So you can maybe, is there like, can you see people learning and the process of that learning in the archaeological record at all? Um, that's a difficult one again, because, you know, when you, when you see something that's been really skillfully made, you can recognise it. And usually it's aesthetic. So even if you can't make hand axe, you can recognise one that's aesthetically pleasing. Well, then the question is, is our aesthetic, can we transfer that back that far? And also, if um, a hand axe is a, you know, it was there for a function, usually to disarticulate an animal. And so a, a badly made hand axe or an expediently made hand axe may have been perfectly functional for the need, which was to disarticulate this animal. So I suppose what I'm saying is, can we discern the difference between one that was made by somebody who wasn't very good and who was trying very hard? And one who was made by somebody who didn't care, they just wanted to get a sharp mm. tool in order to do, do something with it. But people have looked into that idea of learners um, and what kind of debutant, what kind of mistakes they make. So is there a greater proportion of this kind of mistake? So I think, and I'm at the periphery of my, um, I could be making this up, but I don't think I am. But, you know, if you don't hit it properly, the energy doesn't go all the way through and you get what's called a step fracture. Mm. So go, you know, like that process I was saying about learning how to hit something. Um, so I think there's been a project where they were looking at uh, material and where there's a particularly large amount of things like step fractures. That's an indicator that people haven't really got it. So they're in the process of learning. Whereas something that perhaps is just badly made is badly made because it's not the right shape or it's got bits sticking out that shouldn't be there. Well, that could be somebody who knows what they're doing. They just can't be, not can't be bothered, but for whatever reason, they don't need to make it in a particularly finished way. Yeah. 
Yeah, because now when like we try and learn how to nap Flint, it's really difficult to learn. It takes a really long time. But do you think that it would it would have been quicker for them to learn how to do it because everyone around them was doing it? Um, I do because I think we, you know, like today, I've been spent most of today sat down on a laptop. Um, that wouldn't have been how life was. I've got a friend who's a builder, and I've learned loads of things off him because through chopping wood, because we've both got wood burning stoves. So we used to collect wood. Somebody was cutting it down a tree, we'd go and collect it, and then we've got loads of wood. And we'd spend the afternoon chopping wood. It's a bit of a male thing, perhaps. But he, he, he was trained um, as a carpenter. So he, he spent his life working with wood. And he was an amazing wood chopper. He, he, he could do it all day. He'd put very little effort in and get a much better result than me. He was putting much more effort in. So I think people in the past, would their bodies would have been much more competent at doing these tasks than ours. We have to shift from our fairly sedentary way of life in a university environment, I'm not universalizing, to a physical skill-based environment. And I think, yeah, it is a transition. So we have to get used to the transition before we can get used to the making process. In the past, that kind of stuff would have been you know, second nature, I think. I yeah. think. No, it makes sense. Are we running out of time on Zoom? Um, I think we are, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else quickly you'd like to add? Um, no, I mean, I, I find it really rewarding and really enjoyable. And um, I think other people do as well. Mm. And so I'm very keen to promote it, you know, Certainly in the, in the context that I'm in at the moment as a learning, teaching and learning tool, it's great. It's a really nice shift from the academic sat down at a laptop thinking. Yeah. yeah. To actually go and do something. It's really nice. I think a lot of people who are doing archaeology are sort of probably more likely to be people that want to do practical things um, than, than sit and, and just read books. So. Yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us oh my pleasure yes thank you yeah um and we'll get this this up as soon as possible so thank you all right thanks very much and uh, goodbye bye bye, bye.